This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guests today are Bert Fitzgerald and Emma Coley. Uh, they're the founders of Simone Vey House in Portland. Uh, hello, so glad to have you join me today. Thanks, Malcolm. To get started, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up starting a Catholic worker house in Portland? Okay, well, I could start to, so that this is Bert Fitzgerald. And uh, background, um, I became Catholic in high school. I went to uh, Catholic college and then did grad school in, um, in theology. And, um, and after that, I ended up doing some um, sort of alternative economy work, um, starting a cooperative and a farm-to-table operation. And I joined the Catholic Worker in South Bend, Indiana, and I moved to Portland six years ago with uh, some thoughts about what some possibilities in the Catholic Worker movement were that it would be good to try to realize. And, um, and then a couple of years ago, just more than two years ago, so three summers ago, uh, we had the opportunity to actually do that. And the a confluence of circumstances, the house I already lived in, um, I was able to get a note to the owner and um, started on profit that would pay the bills. And Yeah, and I joined the Simone Bay House um, a little over a year ago now, last August. Um, I'm from Akron, Ohio, and um, got to know the Catholic worker there as a high school student. Um, so I used to go there week after week and was very inspired by Dorothy Day's autobiography, as well as... Yeah, the work that was going on there, especially in emphasis on um, on community, in addition to kind of in addition to serving. And so when I was in college, I also got to know a community of folks who were living outside in a self organized community called the Village Second Chance Second Chance Village. Um, and I started doing writing my undergraduate thesis about that community. Um, and after it was shut down by the police um, one winter, um, the lawyer who was defending that community suggested I go out to Portland to see what was happening at some of the communities here. And as someone who was already inspired by the Catholic worker, new to the West Coast, um, and doing research, especially on houselessness in, in Portland, just Googled Catholic worker Portland, um, and ended up being here for the first, the very first Wednesday dinner of, of the house. Um, yeah, and then Bert dropped me off at the airport and on my, at the end of my research and said, hey, you should think about coming back after you graduate. Um, and yeah, it was very inspired in this house in particular um, by its attempt to live and explore Peter Morin's economic vision as well as um, as well as the broader movement's uh, emphasis on hospitality. Yeah, I'm also that's you know, one of the reasons I'm excited to interview you is that uh, focus on the economic system aspect of the Catholic worker thought, which isn't as common as some of the other expressions of Catholic worker hospitality. Um, I know, uh, uh, Bert, you mentioned that you're a convert. What uh, what brought you into the church? Well, I yeah, I was raised as an atheist with really, um, I was named after Bertrand Russell um, because uh -huh. my dad was so grateful to uh, Bertrand Russell for convincing him out of Christianity. So I didn't have much exposure to it growing up, uh, but I went to a Catholic high school, just uh, some circumstances, really. And, um, and by that time, I, I was open to the idea of God and and uh but really it was a retreat so especially uh Kairos a Kairos retreat my senior year in high school uh that made me yeah that it really bore home that God is love and that responding to that and sharing that love is the is the only thing worth doing and it's what I need to figure out how to do so uh yeah so I kind of went about that after that retreat it's interesting <laughs> well what about trying to figure out what to do? I wouldn't say. What is that? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Emma, the Second Chance Village, what was the uh, situation there? Why did they get shut down? Yeah, so it was a self-organized community of folks that I met through um, the LABRA program at my high school. And they were invited onto the property, onto a commercial property by the property owner uh, who said, um, yeah, who said that, I have some land. Yeah, of course you can pitch a tent, uh, but you guys need to manage it yourselves. Um, and so folks there uh, started running their own security, uh, organizing themselves to coordinate sharing resources, um, as well as um, as well as knowledge about how to how to live outside in in the winter in Northeast Ohio. 
And, uh, but then it was, it was classified as a campground in the eyes of some neighbors who filed complaints. And the property owner argued that he had a right to rescue under Ohio's Good Samaritan law. Um, so he had a right to rescue folks who were in need of shelter. Uh, and so that's, that's the argument he tried to make uh, in front of the city and in front of court and in front of, uh, or when his case was brought to court. And also that, um, that, you know, according to city zoning law, you, you're allowed to have a conditional use permit as long as you can prove you're a benefit to the neighborhood, which of course raised the question of who is the neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Uh, do folks who don't have an address, who don't own property, who don't rent, um, are they part of that neighborhood? Um, so that really got me um, interested in questions, especially around, yeah, neighborhood economics and what it means to live together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is certainly a really good question, you know, who the neighborhood is, you know. So uh, how did the, why, why did you decide to choose uh, Simone Weil as the patron for the Catholic worker? Great question. Yeah. Um, so in, in grad school, um, although I was in, I was doing a master's in theological studies at Notre Dame, I was actually uh, struggling with nihilism, I would say at, at that point, I had some really difficult things that happened. I'd done, um, I, I read Nietzsche a lot to sort of give myself the, the sort of sting, what felt like the sting of reality. So, but a couple, for a few years after that, reading, um, reading Simone Weil, I felt the same sense of, well, actually a, a greater sense of this, of, um, of a search for truth that had no, no boundaries on it. I like to call her like the patron saint of intellectual honesty. So I got that from her in a way I had from Nietzsche, except with her, there's a sort of, there's not an edge to it or the edge is, could point in any direction because she's interested in the challenge that reality gives to us that opens us to, uh, to God who we can't seek for, but by living as we ought, by living justice and purity in different respects, um, God can come to us. So that was, uh, that was really helpful to me and, um, and her, um, I would say you could look at her in terms of uh, Peter Marin's, uh, you know, clarification of thought. She helped to clarify my thought and, and I find a, a deep well of resource for thinking about what clarification of thought is um, in her. And, and there are just some, so many parallels between her life and Dorothy Day's life. Um, so yeah, it, it seemed like a, a, a way to, um, to get at some traditions, some resources of the Catholic worker movement points to, but could, could be founded, um, in a different language. Yeah. Could you just tell us just briefly about her background for any listeners who might've never heard of her before? Yeah, so she was a, a Jewish woman who died at the age 34 in 1943, um, and she not 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 at the hands of Nazis, but well involved in resistance though in some ways, and um, she uh, she studied philosophy and she she kind of went back and forth between doing a teaching philosophy and working um, as a farm laborer, as a factory worker, and or, and working in organize in um, labor organizing. So she was in sort of left politics uh, in the 30s, and then found that found us found them to be a type of asceticism in a way because she felt the need to be involved in it, but also found she's a Platonist um, and found that the good was entirely lacking there, but rather you know you could find in, uh, things that were sort of necessary evils. So, um, but uh, she well while praying while reading the Our Father in Greek as poetry, she felt possessed by God. And so, so through mystical experiences, she became open. She, she considered God to be a question that couldn't, that a meaningless question, essentially, until she felt that Jesus uh, came to her personally. And then, and then there was this, a tense and a, a sort of interesting relationship with Catholicism after that. She was never baptized, but she wrote um, in the last few years of her life, just amazing um, spiritual, uh, well, you would, you would say, in her notebooks, she left a, an amazing testament of, of spiritual work that, that are have a sort of crystalline purity to them that people have then excerpted in collections like Waiting for God and um, Gravity and Grace. Yeah, she's a, you know, I haven't really dug too much into her uh, writings, but I know that some of her writing on attention um, was really important for me, how attention is 
Uh, mm-hmm. Attention to anything is a sort of prayer or a sort of preparation for prayer that uh, we, we would tend to separate, you know, the attention one's paying to studies from prayer mm-hmm. as if they're two entirely different things, whereas she's trying to explain they're a, um, an aspect of the same thing, that being open to something outside of oneself. Yeah, she's great at challenging us when we want to pit things up against each other, sort of like school, like the type of uh, like justice, prayer, um, intellectual openness. So she She's really good at pointing us to the way that all of these things are one and our disregard for some aspect of it means essentially a disregard for the whole. Yeah, we can't wall any aspect of life off. If we're Christians, then we believe that the coming of Christ changes everything and influences everything. And that's uh, that's a very Catholic worker sort of idea, you know, that we can't uh, just have a sort of comfortable piety over on one side and then keep living our daily lives if our lives are not uh, showing forth that um, that faith that we profess in prayer, then we've got a, a serious problem on our hands. Yeah, so, so can you tell us a little bit about the history, I guess, or timeline of the community from when you started it until uh, today. What are the what are the big milestones along the way? Well, I guess I'll I'll talk about the first year, and then Emma can talk about the second year. Uh, yeah, the first day was um, so I worked at St. Francis Dining Hall in uh, which is a basically homeless services in Portland before. I so met people who were living outside and always had in mind that maybe would be able to invite someone into something. So quickly. Uh, reconnected with two people um, who had gotten to know who lived outside and relied on that for resources. They still needed a place, so invited them in. And then as more bedrooms and more spaces and became available, invited others in. And um, so the hospitality just started with a kind of, I don't want to say a glorified household where with a non-typical structure where I was sort of organizing it and, um, and also wanting uh, I say the emphasis, especially early on, was we're, you know, our, our level, our scale is we're just a house um, that's trying to do something that any house could do. And that and trying to tap into the Catholic worker tradition of uh, Christ room hospitality, something Dorothy Day thought that, that um, you know, having a room for Christ is something one should do as a, as a, as a Christian, as a part of a baptismal call, not out of any special, not because, you know, a special ministry. And frankly, that is how I've always felt as always seen myself in this work, I don't think I necessarily have any special call to hospitality. It's just, there's just a, a part of a way of life that seems like the Christian one. So anyway, so doing that as a household and then wanting to show other people um, how this is what Christ room hospitality looks like. This is what it would look like maybe to have a tiny house in your backyard or a place where someone could shower or do laundry. So there was, that was a big initial emphasis. Um, starting to bring people together for, for intellectual and spiritual formation around reading texts, starting with Simone Bay and Dorothy Day, and, um, and background conversations having to do with our current economic projects. And yeah, maybe, Emma, you could describe those. Yeah. So I first arrived in August 2020, so in the middle of the pandemic. And at that point, um, of course, uh, we call ourselves a Catholic worker in public household. Um, and of course, there wasn't much public household work going on at the time. Um, although we were still able to have some outside dinners and um, outside dinners and invite people for, you know, to drop off laundry and things as we could. Um, so at, when I first moved here, I was living in a storage unit that was converted into a living space. Um, so when I got here helping to finish put in the floors and uh, cut in the air holes that uh, didn't, that weren't, that weren't actually there yet. On the phone, Emma said she was an anaerobic organism, yeah. but then it turned out that she I needed oxygen. So yeah. So after we cut the air holes into that, that's where I lived for my first um, couple of months here. Uh, and before we ended up getting a second structure also, which is a tiny house on wheels um, that came from another nonprofit in Portland called Cascadia Clusters which is an organization that um, hires mostly folks who are currently homeless or formerly homeless uh, to build structures that will then be used by folks who are still living outside. Um, They've been a really wonderful partner for us, and uh, we can say more about that. Um, So that's where I lived at first. Um, And then in February of 2021, um, the opportunity finally came, or I should say things fell into place for us to start a second house across the street, which we call the Dorothy Day House. Um, so it's just, you know, a couple couple hundred feet from, from where we are now. 
Um, and so, but there was a backstory to that where the house had been called um, Hell House in the neighborhood. In fact, it had that spray painted on the front of it. Um, and inside uh, there were 666s, six, six, sixes, upside down crosses, uh, someone, something that said, I hate God. Swastikas. Swastikas. Um, uh, yeah. And thousands of hypodermic needles, which Bert, you can say more about uh, the books that were found there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we did a cleanup project uh, where, yeah, we literally cleaned up just, uh, it's like a, almost like a, a water level of, of junk and needles. But uh, among the books were, uh, was it? Oh, Catholic Household Blessings and um, uh, Marie, Marie Kondo's The Art of Tidying Up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you got to take a picture with <laughs> yeah. And we did tidy up and we did uh, actually two exorcisms. So uh, yeah. the yeah. house got what it asked for. <laughs> yeah. Got what it needed. Yeah. Um, but actually, but before that, Bert had had his eye on it because we live in a neighborhood that's rapidly gentrifying. And so of the houses that are around, most are getting torn down and duplexes built in their place. And so this is a house that, you know, probably would have an affordable rent uh, for us. Uh, so we were able to, after it was finally renovated um, a bit, um, move across the street um, in order to expand our community, which now is a community of 13 12? 11 to 14 depending. 11 to 14 depending on the day <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so we function mostly as a combined house community yeah that's great and that's uh that's very funny about those books you know kind of uh, a strange symbolism uh there um with the uh with the tiny houses and converted uh storage units and whatever did you get into trouble with uh codes and things or uh was that okay <laughs> Well, um, both. Well, first of all, when we were starting to move across the street or when we had just moved across the street, or was it? Yeah, when we had just moved across the street, um, a neighbor who had just heard about what we were doing filed a zoning complaint um, saying that we were trying to run a essentially like a for-profit transitional housing um, mm -hmm. organization out of that house. And so this was actually, I think it was before we even moved in, yeah. um, which was, you know, so the property manager saw that, the owner saw that, you know, so we were really nervous that um, at this point we had already had folks lined up to move into that house, myself included. And I thought, oh, this whole thing could, could fall through um, due to that complaint. And well, it turns out that one day, and so those were entered into the city record. And then one day those complaints just disappeared from city record. Um, and so we jokingly say that was a, uh, you know, a miracle performed by Dorothy Day that we should uh, submit for <laughs> submit for her canonization process, the erasure of complaints from the city records. Um, but since then, we have had some trouble also. Most of our immediate neighbors are know what we're up to and are friendly. Um, it's usually property managers, other properties, property managers that uh, have given us a little bit trouble, a little bit of trouble. Uh, for example, there's a duplex being built across the street from the Dorothy Day house um, that used to be an empty lot of or the double lot of a multi-generational uh, family home of a family that had been here for many years before they moved or were priced out of this area. Uh, and those, uh, the, the contractors for the duplex um, filed a complaint about a tiny house that we had um, parked in the driveway of our second house. And anyway, we ran into a lot of issues with that. And ultimately, um, fines were erased, complaints like were closed out, but um, still decided to move, move that tiny house. Um, due to its kind of hyper visibility again in a neighborhood that's changing that's changing pretty rapidly. Mm -hmm. So you're you're not able to have uh, tiny houses on the lots anymore, or oh, just um, it was the specific <laughs> circumstances of that of that <clears throat> one tiny house because it was little. It had some attempts at indoor plumbing that uh, were that ran afoul of city code, uh, at I least see. current city code. But at this Mount Bay house. Where you kind of have a no one asks and a, we don't show it off too much <laughs> policy. I see. We, yeah. we have, you would say, three tiny houses here. Yeah. On this, uh -huh. on this double lot. Yeah. yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah, because I don't know, a tiny house movement is something I've always been very uh, interested in. I've never, never. Um, we we've our families, you know, sometimes kind of half seriously talked about building one. We've never tried anything like that. So. Um. Yeah, and then I know you also uh, started um, a credit union project. Uh, can you tell us like, both what inspired um, your attempt to offer interest-free loans and all about it? Yeah, let's see. Um, for my, so when I was in South Bend, uh, Indiana, at the, the Catholic Worker there, um, 
Yeah, and, and uh, got to mess around with a, uh, an abandoned mansion to, to make a, a trust economy public space. I remember I was really interested in something we've gotten to develop here, and that is kind of why, if you, if you think of relationships in concentric circles, where there's a certain way socially and economically we deal with family and, and close friends, and then there's another one you do with the public, and that's you know the money economy, essentially. What would it look like to just widen the concentric circle of people you would treat like family or like friends or the, in more of the economic basis? So like trust, uh, you know, that the reciprocity would be handled not tit for tat, but I mean, it could be transactional, but in some way it would it would be different. Like what is offered would be different. How it's how remuneration happens. It would all the dynamics are essentially friendlier and make for a different sort of space. So um, anyway, so that that got thinking about um, what it would look like. Like what what would the how could we hold our resource our money resources in a way that was doing the same thing, expanding the concentric circle of uh, of people with whom we would hold things as we do with family and, and friends. So um, then after essentially being inspired by the Old Testament, especially the Torahs, um, ways of you could say a lot of the law has to do with responding to the potential and then the challenge of intergenerational poverty. That if everyone, if everyone here is valuable to God, then you can't have people falling between the cracks. You can't have people losing their land or uh, having debt that would end up having them imprisoned um, or being sold as, as servants and so on. So we have this framework in our own faith background for basically how to deal with money and other resources um, in a certain way. And um, <clears throat> I was really inspired by that and recognized that Really, this is something that's at the root of the credit union movement. Now, a credit union, we think of as it's sort of like a bank that's technically cooperatively owned. But the root of the credit union movement is um, in North America, as actually Catholic parishes who, for religious and ethnic reasons, weren't couldn't be a part of the mainstream financial system. So, the essentially credit was done in the associations of mutual aid, like where you you save money in a common pot, and, and loans are made out of that, not to profit. Uh, some outside group, but but just to 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 keep the lights on, as they say, and um, I mean, in terms of there being any margin on that, and um, and on the basis of need, um, with with a common medium of relationship. So like that that would be well, is could this person pay it back? Well, you know, I know that person's background. I know the job that they have. Uh, I know that the problem that they had here that would have to be overlooked in some way because something changed. And okay. So anyway, saw so in the, the background of, of the credit union movement, actually a way of living the Judeo-Christian tradition of mutual responsibility, the fact that we're all part of God's family, to use that term again. And, <clears throat> and God has expanded his concentric circle, like we are God's family in law, like through covenant. And we're called to treat each other like that, to be each other's family in law, in the way that we, we hold resources together. So um, Longster, that that's the kind of the background, I would say the, the background inspiration. But since I've been talking for a while, I'll hand it to Emma to talk. Yeah, and, I mean, <clears throat> and to also tie that to the Catholic worker movement, uh, both Dorothy and Peter wrote about their fondness for credit unions, especially as ways of living, as really living as though we were members one of another, as though we were, really were the body of Christ. And uh, yeah, and so Dorothy especially was, inspired by the United Farm Workers Credit Union, um, which did things like, uh, for example, when um, a spouse uh, passed away, the family was given not just the money that was in the account, but double that amount, um, recognizing that that there was a you know unforeseen tragedy here and that ultimately it wasn't just giving others their due, but giving others um, what was necessary to sustain their well-being. Again, thinking about family in the way Bert was talking about, thinking about ourselves as the household of God. Um, or in this case, just this, just in recognition of the fact that, you know, our, our welfare is bound up uh, with uh, one with another. Yeah, so today, or so we started this, Bert had been in conversation with Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for a few years, and Bob Kloska, our primary partner on the project, 
uh, is our primary partner on the project in um, Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Um, it's the largest Catholic credit union in the U.S. Um, and but kind of despite that, they uh, very firmly believe in the principle of subsidiarity um, and saw some of what we were proposing as an opportunity for them to really live their own uh, commitment to subsidiarity and experiment uh, or kind of push their own boundaries for who um, they might consider a borrower. Um, and so we started to think about um, ways we might be able to create subsidiary, essentially subsidiary credit unions within the larger credit union of Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. And so in doing so, we looked to inspiration from, for example, the Hebrew Free Loan Society of New York, um, which for, I think, over a century now has been offering zero interest loans to folks who otherwise wouldn't have access to credit based on the guarantor system. And when we talked to folks there, um, I was particularly inspired by um, one by one comment that was made, which was that and the guarantor system actually strengthened ties, or they saw it as actually strengthening ties within their community. And thinking about the way we commonly understand money today and kind of a, a we talk about it in kind of hushed tones or money is a thing that we think about as being a barrier to, especially differences in, in, in income or wealth, being a barrier to relationship um, or debt being something that kind of closes us off uh, from another person or something shameful. Here was a case where, um, where the borrower guarantor relationship was actually something that could strengthen strengthen bonds um, was something that was really um, inspiring and exciting to me, and so we decided to um, kind of center our what we're now calling our mutual mutual economic community, and we call this our mutual banking project. Um, we decided to center that around, uh, or to start with one particular mechanism, which is offering zero or very low interest loans to folks based on the guarantor system, um, including folks who otherwise wouldn't have access to credit. So it starts with um, our house, the Simone Bay house is the central node. Um, and we have a, a sub account within our uh, larger nonprofit account and that we're calling the redemption fund, which is essentially a community fund that can help to make those zero interest loans to folks. Um, but I could turn it over to Bert to say a little more about that. Yeah, so as um, <clears throat> as a way of discussing what a what a bank is, if if uh, even a credit union, you could think of so Notre Dame Federal Credit is sixty thousand members. You could think of it as like a hub and sixty thousand spokes, whereas this is banking as a community of communities. So we as this this node, this there is this pre existing basis, and within that, we we so we're our accounts are tethered in a certain way. Um, well, more just for the sake of their system, not in any not in any way that puts people's you know accounts at risk, but they're tethered. And then when someone wants to needs loan, then someone else guarantees it. So there is this. Um, and then we also so yeah. So the unusual things would be that which Emma talked about that um, the fact that we are doing the what at the banking level at the central level would be called underwriting. We're we're doing that. Uh, that that processing, like, okay, does this make sense? Let's let's look at a budget together. Let's have a conversation. Let's introduce you to your uh, potential guarantor. Let's let's build a relationship there. Um, let's let's frame this in terms of trust and responsibility. All the things that um, you, our due diligence and 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 making explicit the way that this is a function of community and a function and and a chance to. To practice responsibility on the one hand and practice trust, you know, for the other party. So anyway, it's it's on us to handle those things. Those are the things sort of devolved in terms of subsidiarity and you know, to use the other big Catholic social teaching word, you know, create solidarity. We're very explicitly in solidarity with one another in this. And to mention one other thing, we we call the the account that we have for purchasing zero interest loans, for playing an interest equivalent up front, we call the redemption fund. Uh, again, Going back to the Old Testament background for what redeemer, you know, Jesus as our redeemer that means is in a in a in the Hebrew context when someone um, when a, a family member is in a precarious situation uh, where they might lose their land or 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 other things as well or have there's actually an obligation to buy the person out of that debt. Um, so this is buying out of usurious debt. Um, and the community's fund is doing that. And everyone, but just by opening an account, um, NDFCU kicks $150 into this fund for each person owns opens an account. And then there are other ways to sustain it too. 
So there's a sense in which very it's a very uh, helpful symbol of our theology of redemption that we are all participating just by op- just by becoming part of this. We are we are sort of participating in the redemption of one another from usurious debt. Um, so a lot of practical ramifications and a, and a beautiful sort of template for connecting what we believe and what we how we worship. You know, when I, I think of what we're doing in the liturgy, are, are taking on you know a redemption, taking on the mantle of redemption. Um, so it offers a beautiful template and and a starting point for thinking about the rest of our economic lives. What else could work on this template as opposed to the ones we're more used to? That's really really beautiful, a fascinating project, and also you know I was struck by your beautiful reflection on how like if God widened the circle such that we became family to God, if it was widened out to the point where Christ would take on our debts and cancel them in His death, that how could we refuse to take you know others into that same familial structure? It just it doesn't make sense if you know we've been redeemed for eternal mm-hmm. life, that we would refuse to redeem the paltry sum of you know, temporal wealth that someone else needs. I, I really like the way you put that connection. Yeah. I mean, and in so many ways, it's the same pattern on which you know, houses of hospitality function. Um, oftentimes, folks who um, at least have found their way to our community are people who, for one reason or another, have, have, sever- have either severed ties with their family or otherwise um, have those ties have been broken in some way, either through death or, or other issues or drug use or other issues. Um, and here's a place where, yeah, really stepping in to play that kind of like backstop role and that supportive role. I'm not as, you know, professional social workers or anything like that, but really just as, as friends and family members. I mean, I think about, you know, the roots of that, even within my own family, um, part of what inspired me or drew me to the Catholic worker was the fact that, you know, my own grandfather, um, after my grandmother passed away, he opened up his house to, uh, to folks who were struggling with alcoholism, who needed space from their families in order to actually preserve those family ties, needed just a place to be away for a bit um, while they were uh, during their recovery. And so again, thinking about, you know, within the Catholic worker tradition, and, and as Bert was saying, uh, also um, kind of a pattern that we're, that we're inhabiting through a mutual banking project is this idea that like so much of what we think about as specialized or professionalized doesn't really need mm-hmm. to be. And you think, you know, like Bert saying, you know, really the community kind of doing the underwriting process that we otherwise think about as requiring the um, skills, as requiring skills and expertise instead can be, yeah, can function according to a different logic um, and a logic that's not one of specialization. Uh, it reminds me of what Dorothy uh you would write about, um, you know, during the Great Depression, how she was opposed to the state ownership of the indigent uh, for, you know, because of, you know, what's in the aims and means that, you know, government by bureaucracy is government by nobody. Um, and so much of what, uh, when we kind of divest ourselves of, of personal responsibility, it ultimately goes to nobody, either in the form of literally nobody or or to bureaucracy. Something that came to mind just uh, just to, to frame this in terms of some of the general dynamics in the in the economy of banking um, for banks and um, yeah for for commercial banks they you know they're they're rated by you know how they hold their assets what they're what they're invested in and so on and a bank actually has there are a lot of incentives for you know a bank let's say it made a hundred loans to then sell those to another bank as a tranche of a certain type of loan so that another bank holds those as securities and maybe a, that other maybe they would then get that bank because it's actually helpful to your to to your rating for your assets to basically to basically be farther down the line from you know from from the potential for default basically so if you have like uh, some some intermediary step it seems like you're in, it seems like your holdings are in less danger because they've been sort of segregated into separate tranches as opposed to the opposite logic, which is maybe being in relationship and have with the person who you know you've lent to, maybe your security lies in that. This is against like the sort of leading the the edge that that banking takes, which is like towards greater and greater anonymization. Yeah, Ryan Z, I uh, 
few months ago, I wrote something for the website where I was talking about security and how it's a word with, uh, you know, potentially different meanings in a Christian, from a Christian standpoint that in one sense in the gospel, trying to get security is condemned. Uh, you know, the rich fool with his barns full of stuff, you know, he's got enough for years and uh, he's a fool and, and God will require his life from him. And yet at the same time, I mean, security seems so basic, so necessary for human beings. And I was trying to, you know, preach this voluntary poverty thing to some of my friends who weren't, um, who weren't buying it because they said, you know, like I'm, I'm living from hand to mouth, always, you know, worrying about economic insecurity. And so that's what I think when I really started to realize the tight connection between community and voluntary poverty, that what's condemned in the gospel is an individualistic uh, material attempt at gaining security for oneself. So kind of parallel to that bank, trying to get as far away from other people to try to get it security. So, you know, like the, the rich fool with his barn presumably had to make sure that, you know, like the other people in the community weren't going to have access to those barns or it wouldn't, he wouldn't have that security anymore. Whereas, uh, as I came to realize, the Christian community is supposed to replace that security and wealth with security and relationship. That uh, the, the security based on giving your all to someone else and that someone else reciprocating and giving their all to you. Um, which is the kind of security that is certainly not condemned, but actually promoted uh, in the gospel. So it's just interesting thinking about that applied to the banking system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're very interesting, of course, analogies with insurance. Like what, what provides sort of like what surprises you security? What, what is your insurance? What ensures you that there will be... <clears throat> um, yeah, that that if if you fall, that there's a structure there, and yeah, is that your is that relationships into which this sort of expectation is can be built, or or is that the need to have a lot of liquid assets? Right, and also I was uh, another point um, that I liked in your discussion of this economic project is the um, just the drawing on the Old Testament. I mean, it, it's fascinating when you read it and realize that from an economic standpoint, we're not at the Old Testament level. And the New Testament is supposed to, you know, mm -hmm. like it's not about rejecting the Old Testament. It's about going beyond it in Christ. And yet uh, in, the, in the area of communal economics, you know, Christians initially did go beyond it as we read in Acts. And if we read the fathers of the church, I mean, they've got a lot to say. So initially... As, as Christianity did in certain other aspects, it, it uh, developed the Old Testament commands to a further level. But somehow, um, in the centuries in between, Christians have entirely forgot about that. And by now, most Christians are not at the Old Testament level or even at like the natural pagan uh, level. You know, if you read about, and that was another thing that really struck me in what you're talking about is this... Um, this the fact that money today is sort of the opposite of community our economic structure is something that's at the opposite pole from community life whereas in like a traditional uh, village the economy was the thing that bound them together um, a, a gift and uh, local credit-based economies were kind of the the mortar that bound um, the individual households of a village together into a unit so yeah we've come we've come uh a long way in the wrong direction from even like the natural um, uses of the economy. Yeah. It's interesting that um, things that we, things that we can consider uh, when we, uh, we look back at, for example, the, the Jubilee tradition and the Jubilee is basically a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Like think of what you would do on a Sabbath and then think of a grand Sabbath um, that, we think of that now we, we read that in the bible and it's common to think well that's a that's a nice ideal but that surely never happened but actually it not only happened but the hebrew society wasn't the only society in the near east which it was actually common in the ancient world that there would be for example periodic uh debt forgiveness because that was seen as destab because indebtedness um was seen as destabilizing society Whereas now we see indebtedness as sort of stabilizing society because it means that, well, that debt is held by, um, well, I mean, with qualifications, I'm being simplistic, I know. But, um, but 
you would think of stability in terms of like too big to fail, like the biggest things, let's, let's make sure that those are okay. And then the small things, small, the people, you know, sure. Um, something could happen there, but that won't destabilize society, but they saw it, um, uh, differently. And so it's, it's interesting to think just how, to what you were saying about the, the level of, of paganism or something that, um, yeah, it, it was, this is actually, uh, sort of earthly as well as spiritual wisdom. Yeah, I mean, and we're uh, also one of the essays we recently read with our mutual economy group is Two Economies by Wendell Berry, um, as well as Liturgy Cosmos History um, by Ratzinger, both of which talk about these interlocking circles of economy. Um, there's the great economy or the kingdom of God, and then there's our smaller economies that must kind of fit in harmoniously or that should fit in harmoniously within the great economy. Um, so an economy that takes into account that, you know, that where liturgy is part of this is also part of this like offering and cycling back um, is establishing a relationship between God and humans. And then also that to think about our own economy as somehow related to that as part of the same process or part of this, the same interlocking cycles of exchange. And um, that's something that you see in the Hebrew Bible um, as Bert was talking about with these interlocking cycles of Sabbath, um, of Sabbath rest on, um, you know, on you know, weekly paired with, you know, a larger Sabbath. Um, every seven or sabbatical year, every seven years, then the Jubilee or the Sabbath of Sabbaths, um, seven times seven. And so how can we also think about ourselves as, uh, think about our kind of mundane economic action as part of this uh, larger fabric that can either, you know, help to bring about or lead us further away from the kingdom of God? It reminds me of, uh, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember reading about an African, uh, a missionary to some African country, and he was talking about in, in the remote village um, when everyone came together for um, mass on Sunday for the liturgy, um, they would bring, instead of, you know, cash offerings as we might uh, give here, they would be bringing, you know, the produce of the earth, whatever they, they had, and that at the end of the liturgy, uh, some of those... Um, goods that were brought with as an offering for the liturgy would be distributed to those in need. So there very clearly the liturgy had um, an aspect of redistribution, an aspect of um, giving uh, from the community to one another uh, that helped to bring them together. And yeah, it's like that, that, that everything is ultimately liturgical. The liturgy the liturgy is not marked off as something sacred as opposed to the mundane world. The liturgy is a sign of what everything is supposed to be. So in the Old Testament, when you know some of the animals from the flocks of the people of Israel were offered, it was to remind them that everything was the Lord's, that everything was in that sense sacred, uh, that they themselves belonged to the Lord. And similarly then when we're at the liturgy and we're there as the body of Christ, that everything we do has to be taken up in that offering and in that transformation of the mass. But that's a, you know, that's a aspect of the liturgy, I think, that has been, been too often neglected. Yeah, I mean, our, our, the whole steering committee for our kind of node here of our mutual economy community um, at the Simone Bay House uh, grew out of a course that we offered in partnership with Notre Dame's McGrath Institute for Church Life called Liturgy and Community and Economy um, that took up these questions. And yeah, so that's where so much of what... Uh, our project or our project here at the house has been inspired by and guided by um, and also why we hope that this will be a model taken up by the parish and that this is something that kind of rightfully exists or perhaps even more rightfully exists within a parish context than it necessarily does within a catholic worker household because so much of it um, so much of what we're doing draws its inspiration from and we view as an extension of um, the catholic liturgy yeah, and you know, I think, you know, like thinking about our current money, our current economy as like the opposite of community, the opposite of liturgy, um, sort of uh, sort of an aspect of an anti-Christ, an anti-Christian um, function. I think uh, intuitively everyone knows that because like no one wants to talk about money. No one, in one sense, we most of us would rather not have anything to do with money, you know, you think about, you can ask your friends for lots of things. Like uh, most friends would be more willing. I think if, if like I asked say to get a ride somewhere, than if I asked them to 
um, give me the money that would be required to take a taxi to the same place, even if it would involve them in a lot more bother. Um, or uh, like I'm thinking about like our, our doctor, you can just tell that like he hates being paid, you know, like here he is in this healing relationship, right? And then, you know, at the end, there's kind of this awkward um, handing over money, which seems to change the whole um, aspect or, or like the difference between getting an object as a Christmas or birthday gift and getting the same amount of money uh, handed to you. That it's just interesting. Intuitively, we all seem to know that there's something deeply wrong with our current system, something uh, uh, contaminating and unnatural. Yeah, the money, uh, the money economy um, can sort of reach an extreme degree when everything uh, is valued, when more and more things are valued um, on one scale so that things don't have uh, a particular, so there's, there's less place for particularity. There's less place for a tradition. Let's say this land belongs in this family. Um, this type of work is done within the family. Um, this, but you know, the things that are are not on the commodity market. In the commodity market is to say that which has an explicit monetary valuation, which is not spoken for uh, by tradition or prescription or any other type of particularity. So, so yeah, in in the expansion of and this always happening more, as more and more things are put on the market or seen in the terms of the market. Yeah, we 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 lose more of the essentially that you could say the the depth or in another sense the diversity of of our lives. So yeah, we we look at this in some ways as moving in the opposite direction. What can be reclaimed by by communities, by families, by traditions in a way that takes them off of the market, that gives them a type of value that couldn't be put in dollars and cents. Yeah, we're thinking back in terms of that Wendell Berry essay. It's about you know we see things only in terms of you know, our little economy and can't see the ways, which is, you know, is inherently limited and can think only in terms of dollars and cents. And we lose sight of how that interlocks with, you know, the kingdom of God, the economy of the kingdom of God. Or I think about um, also Peter Morin's line, um, when we talk about, uh, when he talked about the purpose of the agronomic university, he said it was to restore a sacramental attitude toward life, property, and work. And so think here about what does it mean to kind of restore a sacramental attitude towards Towards property, the things that otherwise we can only view um, in terms of their price tag. Yeah, and that's probably a good uh, a good transition point to talking. I know you've tried to start an agronomic university, but uh, so I'd like to, to ask you about that. Before we get into that, I'd just like to make one more comment on the economic side when you're talking about you know the the growing economy pulling things within its orbit. Um, the best uh, critique of our current economy I've read is that the growing economy grows by turning what was once a social capital and natural capital into financial capital so that um, the end point will be reached once the economy has grown to its maximum size, having destroyed all natural um, values and all social values. Um, we can see that, you know, like over, even over the course of the last 40 years, various things that were not generally done for money are increasingly done for money in each in each generation a new set of um, natural social relationships are turned into a new set of economic relationships to keep generating that um, onward growth so that the end point of our growing economy actually is both uh, the destruction of the natural world and the destruction of everything that we would have called society or, or human nature um, which is is a very uh, alarming thought then to, to, to watch the economy growing in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the logic behind usury. Uh, we talk about this a lot in terms of our own economic projects, um, that, you know, to have, to charge interest on a loan presumes that the person, or assumes that the person who is borrowing that money is going to be able to make more money from that money. Uh, so for example, we recent ha recently had someone uh, somewhat close to our community um, thinking of trying to um, get a hold of a uh, trailer to live in. Um, and that because of his poor credit score, the loan he had access to was a 30% loan. You know, the idea that, you know, he's going to be built, the assumption built in there is that by having this trailer, he's somehow going to not only be able to repay the cost of the trailer itself, but also be able to pay 30% more than that. And that's, you know, that's absurd. Um, 
and we've lost that distinction between yeah productive and unproductive loans but again uh, beneath that is just this sense that having money begets more money um and therefore the logic of growth is just embedded in all that we do and creates the compulsion um to make more money from money there are also when um like you use the word uh, social and environmental capital. And it's, it's interesting to think that our, our frame of reference are for value now is in the money economy, which is funny because that, that economy always has to take its own value from outside of itself. But now we are so enmeshed in it, immersed in it, that we give, that we talk about other things that have a natural value to us. Let's say like, a, you know, a a tree in, in terms of its beauty, um, of water in terms of its utility, that we will talk about that in terms of, of money, which in itself is completely abstract. So it's mm. funny, it just goes to, it's one of those sort of reflection points to think about how, how deeply wound we're in, we're in this frame of reference in which it almost presupposes that money has an inherent, um, as a, an inherent value as opposed to a sort of pass-through value. Our way to show or to somehow inscribe something that's non-monetary with value or to show that we value it is to call it some form of capital, whether that's mm -hmm. social capital or any other form. It's like in the, uh, in the Little Prince where um, he says that, you know, the grown-ups are very strange if, if you tell them, I saw a beautiful house with uh, red tiles and uh, shutters and pigeons on the roof, they won't get any idea of it at all. But if you say... Oh well, that house costs three hundred thousand um, dollars. Then they'll say, "Oh, what a very nice house that must be." Um, <laughs> that's a perfect was, example. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, I was also thinking of uh, uh, recently. You know, I've been reading about people trying to preserve the urban forests in uh, many cities that are under attack, and um, which is a good thing, right? But one of the ways they do it is by explaining that like uh, a mature shade tree in a front yard will add something like $20,000 to a house's value. And that, of course, presupposes that a house is something to be bought and sold, not something to be lived in. They don't talk about how, uh, how much enjoyment um, one would get out of the beauty of a mature tree and, and the connection that one would have to watching that tree slowly grow up along with one's family or anything like that. It's like, well... When you come to sell the house, you'll get twenty thousand more from it. So, um, by that by that logic, the the house and also the tree, uh, they're they're seen as things for sale, uh, things that could be converted mm -hmm. from their their human value into their monetary value, which is very strange, which is which is alarming when you see it. And yet, uh, so few people seem to see it. Perfectly well intentioned people uh, speak this way, and no one seems to see what they're actually saying. Yeah, that's really well. Yeah, yeah, that's really well put. And okay, I'll give you what, one other sort of frame of reference that we have for this is um, is the body is the the body like there's we talk about the body of Christ. What is this sort of the, there's a circulation system of the body of Christ that Paul talks about a lot. You hear about it in his description, and I think it's in one Corinthians. I forget it's eleven, twelve, or thirteen, where where he talks about the honor be given to the the parts typically given the least, but um. But really, we're always a part of some body. And think of the word corporation. A corporation, that's corpus, a body. It's, it's a, with its own logic of circulation. And what is the logic of circulation? Is it to take the resources that are sort of out at the, in the members at the furthest extension and to sort of concentrate it at the head? Or rather, is the head sort of there for the good of the members. And you think of the logic, you know, Christ, the logic of Christ's own kenosis there. So that we, we can be in economic bodies that have one or the other of these logics to them. And so what we, so to go back to the mutual banking, we look at this as basically reclaiming, uh, sort of being, take, putting ourselves uh, in, in the body we want to be for this, when at deep and by default we're not at a sort of neutral place, we're as a part of a body, a, a fabric of connection with each other, uh, where our money is and where we work when we work for a corporation. Um, so, and of course, we can't get out of all of these things at once. We're a part of it in so many ways. But we think that one of—I mean, I know your podcast about community. We think of one of the—I think—really inspiring ways to think about it, an existing community is how can this thing. It is bringing together people based on relationships and shared values 
be the place, be in a sense a body for the circulation of resources, whereas normally we, each one of those members would be a part of the, the default corporate sort of head-centered body uh, that they would otherwise be for, you know, um, banking, for, uh, for food, for insurance, um, for whatever it might be. Yeah, if you're if you're part of a body that's pulling pulling the blood flow away from the the members, you're pretty soon going to get frostbitten fingers and all sorts of of problems, and it's not going to not going to live very long. Um, that's a very good uh, a good metaphor there. Um, so I know uh, to to move from the from the economic um, dimension here, though of course economics kind of runs through everything we do. Um, one of Peter Marin's uh, big visions for the um, Catholic worker was what he called the agronomic university. Can you tell us about what uh, Peter meant by the agronomic university and how you're trying to fulfill that vision? Well, it's a question of much debate <laughs> uh, or uncertainty, I should say, um, in terms of what Peter meant, not so much what he meant, but because, you know, it's a vision that hasn't been, that really hasn't been fulfilled, that hasn't been lived fully. Um, but what Peter you know, meant is, again, he said the mission of the agronomic university is to restore a sacramental attitude toward life, property, and work. It was supposed to be a place where the scholar could be worker, the worker could be scholar. And in this, he was deeply inspired by um, the monastic life, where, you know, especially, you know, the Benedictine um, life of prayer and work, and that one learns not just through through their mind, but also through their hands, and that these things could be mutually reinforcing, that it was good for study to to do work, and it was good for work uh, to study. Um, and thinking about, yeah, how can we, how can there be a unity, or at least a harmony between, um, between these aspects of life? And of course, the agronomic piece is that, you know, central part of this was his green revolution, or his back to the, you know, back to the land movement, where in order to be fully human, um, he thought we had to be in relationship with the earth, um, and that that was, that was, the you know mean or uh, hard labor that we now think of as you know menial work was actually kind of the heart and the essence of work, um, work you know in the fields or um, in the form of crafts, um, to do things that were that were practical that could that were literally the acts that were necessary for sustaining life um, through food, clothing, shelter, and so where we see inspiration in that, uh, it's in part is is because of the way it reaches into kind of the depths of the Catholic tradition. Uh, we're at the house here where um, Benedictine oblates, or rather we're novices um, of a local Benedictine abbey, or novice oblates of a local Benedictine abbey called Mount Angel. And I'm in that. So here's where the Catholic worker, and especially, you know, Dorothy Day herself was a Benedictine oblate, um, deeply inspired by that spirituality and way of life. And so seeing this as kind of where the Catholic worker tradition reaches into you know, the very early stages uh, of just the Catholic tradition more broadly, and where, you know, when you read the rule of St. Benedict, you see a model for an understanding of life in its, in its unity, that there is a kind of wholeness there that's rooted in stability and a kind of promise to conversion and a conversion of one's whole life, not just a piecemeal conversion part by part. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, yeah, we're trying to live here in some way. And of course, um, you know, our agronomic university project started in the time of COVID, our projects. And so, you know, they started on Zoom. And so in some ways, it's as fragmented as one could get, um, you know, life on Zoom, um, and then the life in person. Um, that said, we're still trying to even through, you know, our online discussions to think about how, how are these discussions kind of restoring that unity in some way, or at least exploring it? Um, how are we restoring a sacramental attitude towards um, life, property, and work through the books that we read and what we discuss, and trying to find always kind of a a way of better um, of better uniting these things and uh, finding ways for them to be mutually reinforcing, and having a strong enough life and community, a life of prayer and a life of work, um, to be able to really invite others um, into it here. Um, so that's kind of our long term vision is being able to, yeah, invite invite folks to be here to do to have this be a place uh, where people can. Yeah, a place that truly is like a school of the Lord's service and the way St. Benedict um, described monastic communities. So, to, to piggyback on a couple of things that she said. So, yeah, we're, we, you, we, we have manual work to do here, but it's sort of ad hoc as to what it is. And there's not a large overlap between the people who could take part in that and the people who take part in the classes. But we're trying to, over time, 
you know, bring bring those things together. But one thing we, another thing we're doing though, at the general auspice of formation, the the, the intellectual and the the um, the liturgy of the hour. So we pray uh, with Mount Angel Abbey. So we pray three hours a day uh, there, and and um, and really, you know, we can't differentiate that too much from the text that we're reading. You know, we're reading, you know, we're 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 reading the Bible or we're praying through the Bible as as in that. And um, and I think experientially, it gives us it gives a I would say a certain perspective on reading, um, on listening, on hearing. You know, the gospel has a lot to say about hearing. Is the word um, you know, the same meaning as as obey? Um, it's something that Jesus plays on. Another um, when just from another angle. So we put together a text for we for an academic year we called it and. Um, and this first year, we're actually focused on, a, in some sense, on meta-reflection. Like, we, we, we're we not in our mature stage here as an agronaut will in any aspect of our community, but certainly not in, in this ambitious one. Um, so what we're reading are things that will help us to, I mean, to reflect on the on the ways, especially that we're relating to tradition in that. So re- reading Alexander McIntyre's After Virtue, we just finished that. Uh, we're talking right now about our place within the Catholic worker tradition and the way that practices there um, can build the virtues and connect us in a particular way with a particular thread of the Catholic tradition, um, and one one that is, uh, you know, a tributary of which is is the Benedictine tradition, and um, and one other thing that we're especially emphasizing this year is um, is a term usually used in in Christology. Which is recapitulation. Um, we find there's an inner logic to to our different projects, especially the mutual economy, that um, that hopefully in reading we can understand better and form ourselves in in the, yeah, the sort of uh, the religious background of. So recapitulation is essentially a way of saying Christ, that Christ Christ is the new Adam, and so so. Basically, in Christ in in the incarnation, um, you know, takes on the life of of Adam and and brings it to to its full potential, and the salvation history, you know, is God going through you could say the thickness of time and the particularity of you know of a particular group of humans to to accomplish something universal. So there's a sense in which God had to become small and particular and go through history. And there's another sense that we see that liturgically. Um, and we see ourselves as doing that in other things, too. Um, so like going through the, the history of, of the credit union, going again through the thickness of our own history and reaching back to our Judeo, Judaic roots um, in order to figure out what it is that we do now as Christians. So we want to understand uh, the logic of recapitulation, how how we understand Christ that way, and how we can understand other things that way, and hope to then um, be able to talk about that with more nuance and understanding, um, in order to undergird all the projects that we're doing. Yeah, that's uh, you know that's that's very beautiful because you know the the agronomic university trying to overcome fragmentation because I think that is the one of the key problems in the modern world is fragmentation of all types, and in this case you know, the division between like the blue collar worker and the educated elite um, is, is helping to drive a lot of our political fragmentation um, without each other. They don't, they aren't integrated into society. And also this idea that education is something apart from life, that you know, education is something you do again for money, get, you get it for money. Um, and then you start your life once your education is done. Whereas in the wide sense, Everything that happens in life is part of an education, so you can't really uh, split this. You know, it's too bad that we can't, um, uh, you know, talk about this stuff all day. There's so many other things I'd like to discuss about your project. But in closing here, uh, would you do you have any thoughts, you know, on on what, zooming out from your project, on what you've learned from working with community, working with alternative economics that would have a wider applicability to others who are who are seeking more community in, in the modern world. Off the top of my head, where are you meeting people who you share the, the most of this inspiration with? And how could that group potentially be a place to live it? Um, so not just to advocate for it um, 
as uh, you know belonging to, as for for everybody, or reading about it. Those are those are necessary. But how could you, with a group of people you meet with now, or could meet with, or have some relationship with? Church certainly comes to mind, but school also, um, and social networks. How could that network itself, or that cooperative that you're a part of, that food cooperative, whatever it might be, how can that existing community take on new functions um, in a way that will add depth and sort of scope to what you already share and develop it and make it seem like a way of life? And that's what people, I think, are looking for who are looking for um, community. So that's that's one thought. Yeah, and I think, I mean, along the same lines, to think about um, yeah, the smaller units that we inhabit, um, especially thinking here about the household, that you know, questioning what we think about as private and contained, and what actually might be, what actually might might we be able to make open and available to others, both within ourselves and in terms of our material resources, and how that can be the places that we usually think of as private can be um, a gathering place. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, those are great. Uh you know, suggestions for reflection. And it's been really great having you on, um, you know, to talk about all this stuff. I'm so, so thankful I was able to invite you and that you were willing to come. So thanks again and have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Malcolm. Yeah, thanks for having us on.